Now, would you turn to a slightly obscure verse in the Old Testament, please? It's 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. There are going to be quite a few verses we're looking at this evening. If you have trouble finding them, please just listen and I will read them to you. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, it's in the history of Israel. David is in, has recently become king. He's getting an army together. And it has all sorts of people, useful people. It describes brave warriors. It describes experienced soldiers. It describes people who've come equipped with all sorts of weapons. That sounds useful. And it also describes these people, very necessary people, for David in his army. 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. There were also the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. David needed such. We need such. That's what we need. People who understand the times and know what Israel, in other words the church, should do. Are you such a person? understanding the times and knowing what the church should do. Well, many of us are armchair experts, maybe, with our opinions, but do you understand the times and know what the church should do? Over the next few Sundays, I wouldn't exalt this into the phrase a series. I don't think it will be good enough for that. But over the next few Sundays, I want to have a few sermons uh, about understanding our times and knowing what the church needs and what we should do. And tonight, I want to be persuading you of this. We need God to turn his face towards us. That's what we need. My aim this evening is to persuade you there are times when God turns his face towards a church, and there are times when he turns his face away. I'm going to spend most of the evening trying to persuade you that that is the case. And then at the end, very briefly... Think, how should we respond to that? What are the times we're in? What do we need? Well, one thing is this. We need God to turn his face towards us. So we're going to be going through various parts of the Bible for me to try to persuade you of that. I should warn, it may be a little like an underground train journey. You all been on the London Underground? And what happens? You arrive at a station, you start to get a look around. In fact, I was once on an underground train where people were having a competition. Who could get a chocolate from the machine in every station? And you get there for a short while, you see around, then beep, 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 and the doors shut and off you whiz. Get to the next station, little look around, beep, 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 doors shut and off you whiz. It might be a little like that as we go from one passage to another. But I hope you'll be able to follow, and you will need a Bible open to help you to follow. There are times when God has his face towards the church and there are times when God has his face turned away. I want to look at some evidence for that. Firstly, from the Old Testament. Now, where would you look to see the heartbeat of Old Testament spirituality? Where would you look to see personal Old Testament spirituality expressed? In Psalms, wouldn't you? Okay, there are many other places, but that would be a very good start. Let's turn to the Psalms, and let's turn to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. Psalm 80, and let's read the first seven verses. 
Psalm 80 verse 1, hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin and Manasseh, awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smoulder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbours and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. The historical situation of this psalm is that the Assyrians, the local superpower, have attacked Israel and defeated Israel and carried off most of Israel captive. It was an utter national humiliation and it also caused an awful lot of personal suffering. But why did it happen? Have a look in the psalm at verses seven, sorry, verses four to six. What does the psalm say is the reason why it happened? You might know some other Bible knowledge, but shelve that for the minute. What does the Bible say is the reason for this national disaster? Verses 4 to 6. God did it, doesn't it? That's what it says, God did it. Oh Lord, your anger smoulders. Verse 5, you have fed them with the bread of tears. Verse 5, you have made them drink tears by the bowlful. Verse 6, you have made us a source of contention. Verse 7, make your face shine upon us. Implication, your face is now away from us. We are experiencing this because God has turned his face away from us. Now it is not that God is arbitrary. Some despot in heaven who just throws his dice and decides what to do. No, it's due to their sin. We find that elsewhere in the Old Testament history. And it was due to repeated sin that received repeated warnings. God was very patient with them. But it is God who has judged. Yes, there were enemies who marched in and killed people. But the psalm says behind it is God judging. And therefore, it is God to whom they cry out. Verse 18. Psalm 80, verse 18. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Or verse 2. Awaken your might. Come and save us. They cry out, God, we need your face to turn towards us. Now, I'd like us for a moment to compare that to the way we often pray. What do we often pray? God help us as we're going out to tell the gospel to people. Is that a good prayer? Yes, of course it's a good prayer. But we also need these sorts of prayers. Not just God help us to, but God, we need you to. We need you to turn your face towards us. You have very similar in Psalm 85. Let's turn to that. We're going to have three examples, as you can see up there, from the Psalms. But there are so many. There are so many. 
but I'm going to have to exercise some self-discipline and just have three. Psalm 85, let's read verses 1 to 5. Verses 1 to 5. You showed favour to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, O God our Saviour, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Similar pattern to Psalm 80. First of all, there has been a time when you shone your face on us. A time, verse 1, when you showed us favour and you did so much for us. But now, you're angry with us. Now you're you're angry, verse 5. It feels like you're going to be angry with us forever. It's been going on for so long. And so they cry out, verse 6, will you not revive us again? Verse 7, show us your unfailing love. Now, do you see, their attitude is not, God's favour is a constant, and then it's just a matter of what do we build on that favour. Do you get the picture I'm trying to make? There's God's favour just as a constant. It's always there, it's always the same, and what happens in practice is just, do we do a good job of building on it? That's not their attitude. Now, you might react, but God's favour is a constant because of Jesus. Hey, have you forgotten the gospel, you might think? God's favour is a constant to us because of Jesus. Well, God's love for his children is constant, yes. Always there. Their status in his family is constant, never changing. His plan for the ultimate success of his church is constant, it's never in doubt. But our experiences of his blessing of power from him, of his nearness to us, they are far from constant. Even for the individual Christian, let alone a local church or a nation. Surely, if you've you've had any number of years of experience of the Christian life, you know our experiences of blessing, power from God and nearness to him They are not constant, while in the background his love is most definitely constant. But let alone, if we're thinking about us as a church, or the church in the UK, or even his blessing on a nation. Let's let's turn to the psalm that we read earlier, that Neil read to us, Psalm 44. Psalm 44. I hope you can remember some parts of it that we read earlier. And there are some parts that are very similar. In fact, most of it is very similar to Psalm 80 and Psalm 85. They have heard what God did in the past. Verse 1. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. And it goes on to recount God's face shining on them. They knew his blessing. But now, verse 9. But now you've rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. 
The context is they say, look, we had these great victories in the past, and yes, we shot the arrows, and yes, we held the sword, but it was really God doing it. You see, human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And you were going with us, and we were doing great things, but now... It's like we're going out to battle and it's only our hand on the sword. And it's only us firing the arrows and God's not with us anymore. And so they cry out, verse 6. Sorry. And so they cry out to God. But actually, let's pause. And before we get to them crying out to God, that's all sounded just the same as Psalm 80 and Psalm 85. Why have I got another example? Well, because it's different here. It isn't quite the same as Psalm 80 and Psalm 85. What is the difference if you have a look at verses 17 to 19? How is it different to those previous Psalms? Verse 17 to 19. They hadn't been faithless. It wasn't for their sin. It wasn't God's judgment. Well, in that case, why is God's face turned away from them if it isn't judgment for sin? What has caused it? What is going on? The clue is in verse 22. There's a clue in verse 22. Why are they suffering? They've forgotten God. Well, they say, actually, we haven't, we haven't forgotten God. If we had forgotten God, we, well, we'd understand this, but we haven't forgotten him. You seem to have forgotten us, God. Why? Verse 22 gives you a clue. It's for God's sake. In other words, this is persecution of godly people. There is such a thing as innocent suffering. You don't always see a correlation, you've sinned, you suffer. Life isn't always as simple as that. There is such a thing as persecution of godly people. And you might actually know that that that's the meaning is reinforced by this verse is quoted in Romans chapter 8. It's quoted in Romans chapter 8 to churches that are going to hit persecution. The Romans 8 quote tells us this doesn't always mean God's against them but they're still not knowing the same blessing as before. The same power and the same success as before. But it doesn't always mean judgment. The Romans 8 quote, by the way, also tells us this can happen to churches today. Because Paul took a verse from Psalm 44 and was quite unembarrassed about just applying it directly to a New Testament church and saying, you could have their experience. Persecution by the ungodly. And yet, they see it as God's action. Verse 9. But now you have rejected us and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemies. You, you, you. Yes, ungodly people have done it, but they see God behind it. Because he is the sovereign in control of everything. And so they cry out to God. Verse 23, awake, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Would you dare to say such a thing to God? Seems like he's asleep. Wake up. Rouse yourself. What a thing to say to the Almighty. Do not reject us forever. 
We've been rejected. Come on, have us back. Verse 26, rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. Yes, they still believe he has unfailing love, but they're not experiencing it. And they want to experience it again. They want him to turn his face towards them. Well, there are some examples from the Psalms. Let's turn to the prophets. But before we turn to an actual part of the prophets, would you just put your finger in the front of Isaiah, in Isaiah 1? Just humour me and do something practical a moment. Just put a finger in the front of Isaiah 1 and then have another finger ready and put it in Matthew 1. This is something I discovered by accident when I was flicking through my Bible, trying to find my place a little while back. Put a finger in Isaiah 1 and a finger in Matthew 1 and if you've still got another finger left in that hand, put it in Revelation 22. Can you do that? You've got more than three fingers on your hand, haven't you? Isaiah 1, Matthew 1 and Revelation 22. Can you put a finger in each? And look at what you've got in front of you. What do you notice? This was a surprise to me when I was trying to find my place in the Bible and did this almost by mistake. What do you notice? It is. It is a similar number of... You have got, between two fingers, the prophets, and between another two fingers, the New Testament, and they are almost identical in length. In fact, in my Bible, there's only two page difference. They're almost the same. Now... That doesn't mean the prophets are as important as the New Testament. They're not. But it does say that's a big chunk of God's words. That's a significant chunk of God's message to us. Don't neglect the prophets. They are important. And they have this repeated theme, God has times when his face is turned towards his people and times when his face is turned away. That's a big theme of the prophets, and the prophets are a big chunk of your Bible. Let's see an example. Isaiah 32. Could you find Isaiah 32? Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 9. Verse 9. You may, like me, have a heading that tells you this is addressed to the women of Jerusalem. Israelites, God's people, you women who are so complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel secure, hear what I have to say. In little more than a year, you who feel secure will tremble. The grape harvest will fail and the harvest of fruit will not come. And it goes on to describe a dire experience. Let's pick it up again at verse 14. The fortress will be abandoned. The noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever. The delights of donkeys, a pasture for flocks. In other words, their great city of Jerusalem is going to be wrecked until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the desert becomes a fertile field. And the fertile field seems like a forest. Justice will dwell in the desert. And righteousness will live in the fertile field. Do you get the picture? To start with, there's a great city, Jerusalem, and it's degenerating down into a desert. And then it's a desert coming up till it feels like a field. And then the field is so fruitful it feels like a jungle. 
great reversal. A time when God's face is turned away and they experience dreadful things and a time when God's face is turned towards them and they experience wonderful things. Now, yes, again, God isn't arbitrary. His face is turned away because of their sin. The prophets repeatedly emphasise their need to repent and their responsibility. But the prophets repeatedly emphasise this too. Verse 15, till the Spirit is poured upon us, till God takes action, we need him. And so they cry to him. Chapter 33, verse 2. Chapter 33, verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. At the thunder of your voice, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. They cry. Do you feel the cry? Can you feel it? Oh Lord, be gracious to us. Rise up. It's it's like in the Psalms. Wake up, God. Are you asleep? It's, It's... Oh, it's so different from a mild God. Would you please help us out? We're, we're going to do some evangelism. Would you please help us? No, it's nothing like that. No, no, no mild laid-backness about this prayer. Now, maybe we don't pray like that because we think, well, verse 2, can, verse two isn't for us, is it? Oh, Lord, be gracious to us because you're a Christian. He's already been gracious to you, hasn't he? Oh yes, if you're in Christ, he has been gracious to you. But don't you keep needing his grace? When we go to spread the gospel, it will have no power without him. And do we deserve his power? Oh no, it needs to be by his grace. We still need his grace. And anyway, don't just think of yourself. Aren't you surrounded by people dying clueless that they are going to meet a God who is angry with sin. I was at a relative's funeral on on Friday and I heard a prayer offered about how God, we're sure, will see the best in us and overlook the worst. That's what people think happens. If they've got any idea about God, well, clearly clueless. We need God to be gracious. Look at how many churches you could turn up to and you wouldn't hear the gospel, you'd be misled. Oh, we say, that's them, that's them. Nothing to do with us. Yes, it is to do with us. Because it dishonours our Saviour and it misleads people who need him. God, we need you to be gracious. One more prophet. Uh, Well, same prophet, different chapter. Isaiah 64. Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64, it's very similar to what we've had already. There is crying out to God. Verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. There's crying out to God. There is, look at what you did in the past. Verse 3. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Look what you did in the past. And there's also, but now. Verse 5. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but 
when we continued to sin against you, you were angry. How then can we be saved? Again, it's due to their sin. But they say, God, you're, we've got your face turned away. But there is also a difference, another slight difference here. God hiding his face from them has caused what? According to verse 7. God has hidden his face from them. And what is the result according to verse 7? Because he's hidden his face, they are not doing what? They're not calling on him. People aren't calling on him. Because his face is hidden. One of the results of God's face being hidden is a failure to cry out to him. One of the worst signs that God's face is turned away from a church is when the church isn't crying to him. Oh yes, the church may acknowledge in theory we need God. Every church acknowledges in theory it needs God. But there isn't this deep crying sense, we need God to act. There was a famous minister in the 20th century called Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he was at a minister's conference. And at this minister's conference they were having a prayer meeting. And partway into the prayer meeting, he interrupted and stopped the prayer meeting. And he said to the ministers there, gentlemen, you are praying like men on holiday. Stop. We've got to stop and restart. You are praying like men on holiday. Do we pray like people on holiday? Or like people who are desperate? Who are pained by the way that God is dishonoured and people are dropping into hell? That's not a cause for praying like we're on holiday. Well, there was some Old Testament evidence, and you might be thinking, well, that's all Old Testament. And you've had to spend a long time in the Old Testament and quote the Old Testament because it's different in the New Testament. Yes, in the Old Testament you had sometimes God's face was turned away and sometimes towards, but we're in the New Testament age and it's different. You don't get that now. Wait, hold on a minute. Not so fast there. I've got a page in my Bible that shouldn't be there. I bet you have as well. I've got a page in my Bible that shouldn't be here. I've I've brought a scruffy old Bible with me before you're too shocked. I've got a page in the Bible that so shouldn't be here that I'm going to tear it out. And it's this one. It's the page between the Old and the New Testament. Because they are not to be divided. Oh yes, there are differences. But God hasn't changed. Don't split the Old and the New Testament. It's the same God. And it says in the New Testament, for example in 1 Corinthians 10, that what happened to the Old Testament church was there as an example and a warning to the New Testament church. Here's another thing to take into account. You shouldn't expect to find as much about this in the New Testament because how long did the New Testament take to be written? Well, just a few decades. Far shorter than the Old Testament that took hundreds of years. And the Old Testament was just about all written in revival conditions. They didn't have this issue that they had in the Old Testament because they were... They were writing it while God was blessing them tremendously. But there are indications in the New Testament that those conditions wouldn't always continue. 
So let's look much more briefly at some New Testament evidence. We've had evidence from the old, now more briefly evidence from the new. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The New Testament was in revival times, gospel spreading times, times when missionaries went out and even their enemies said, these people are turning the world upside down. They made a difference. But it wouldn't always be like that. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. Paul's handing on the baton to a younger man. Paul's about to die and he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. And yes, I know people have always been like that, but he says there are going to be hard times coming, Timothy. It's not always going to be these days of power and revival. Similar in chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now, you might say, well, people have always been like that. Yes, but in the New Testament, they were seeing God's power such that there were people wanted to listen and to respond. But Paul says to Timothy, these revival times won't always be there. And in that context, Timothy is told, chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Preach in the good times and in the bad times. Preach when you have power and there's big response, and preach when you feel weak and there's little response. Just keep preaching. Let's look at... Another New Testament example. Let's turn right to the end, to Revelation. A book that looks beyond the revival times of the start of Acts. A book that shows up some cracks that were starting to appear. Worse than cracks. Let's look at Revelation 3, verse 20. Here is a letter from Jesus to a church. And he says to the church... It's important we notice it's to the church, he says. Revelation 3, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What does that say about the Lord Jesus' relationship with that church? He's outside. He's outside. He says, I will come in and eat with you. Eating with someone was a sign of being in fellowship. But he's in effect saying, I'm not at the moment in fellowship with you. Here's a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a fake church, it's a real church. He writes a letter to it. He recognises it. It has, verse 14, an angel, which probably means a minister, a messenger. It's a real church, and Jesus is outside it. And how does Jesus feel about it? Verse 16. How does he feel about this church? Verse 16. Yeah, he feels sick with them. Fancy that, a real church, and Jesus feels sick with them. 
Another example, chapter 2, verse 5. Revelation 2, verse 5. Again, it's a letter, and it's to a church, and they're sinning. They have a sin. They need to repent of this sin. And if they don't repent of this sin, verse 5, I will come to you. He will come to them. That sounds good. No, 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 not good. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What happens when Jesus removes a lampstand? What's a lampstand for? Giving light. If he removes it, there's going to be darkness. We easily read that, but think what it was like for Ephesus. That was a church in a city called Ephesus. As far as we can tell, it was the only church in Ephesus. If Jesus removes the lampstand, the people of the city will be in darkness. There will be people dying without the gospel. And Jesus says, I'll do that if you don't repent. Disaster. And this can be true of a church that seems to be doing well. Let's go back to the church at Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 17. 3, verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. They felt pleased with themselves. They were a successful church as far as they could see. Now this is very relevant because when we read Isaiah or read Psalm 80, you might have said, that's Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, Jesus has had God's face turned away, so we never will. Jesus was exiled from God, so we never will be. And you'd be right for the individual Christian. You'd be right for the church of Christ as a whole. But the local church, or the church in an area, or the church in a nation, can still have its candlestick taken away, or have Jesus on the outside. God's face turned away. And so we must, like those Old Testament saints, cry to God, turn your face towards us, we need you. One more section. I hope you can manage one more section. Evidence from church history. We've had evidence from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. Now let's move into some evidence from church history. Down the history of the church, God's work has not been uniform. It's not been even. There have been times of power and fruitfulness, and there have been times when the church has been weak and unfruitful. And you can't put it all down to human methods. The same gospel has been preached with the same ability and had different effects at different times. Just a few brief examples. Do you know who the Puritans were? The Puritans were these Christians in England who took godliness really seriously, and they worked really hard at seeking God, and they worked really hard at preaching the gospel, and they would get up at four in the morning to seek God. The preachers would go off and preach to the farmers before they went to work in their fields. And if you know how early farmers get up to work, that's very early. They worked hard. And the Puritans in the 1570s saw very few people saved. And the Puritans in the 1640s saw many people saved and whole towns transformed. And they were doing the same thing. Just the same thing. But God chose to bless one in a way he didn't with the other. 
Why? I don't know. He'll have his good reasons. I don't know them, but he did it. Let's move on to the 1700s and find a preacher called George Whitfield. And he preached to crowds of thousands in England and Scotland and the American colonies, as they were called then, and probably Wales, but I'm not so sure about that. And thousands of people turned to Christ, ordinary town folk in Scotland, upper-class people hearing him in stately homes in England, coal miners in Bristol, slaves in the Americas. And the reason I've chosen to mention him is because you can still read his sermons today. You can get books of his sermons and read them. And they are good. They are very good. But they're not extraordinarily good. You read them and you think, this isn't that different from sermons you can still hear today. Why did it happen? Oh, well, he was a very good speaker. He was a very able speaker. But an impressive speaker doesn't make a lasting change in people's lives. What was going on? God's spirit was poured out. God gave unusual power. Let's move on and and nearer to ourselves in time, but further away geographically, let's move to another part of the world. Hudson Taylor was a famous missionary to China. And he and many other godly people spent themselves taking the gospel to China and yet saw very little fruit. And then in the second half of the 20th century, the missionaries were booted out of China and the church has grown to, what is it, 80 million Christians? 100 million Christians? I don't really know, there's so many of them. And wherever in the world you find Chinese people, you find responsiveness to the gospel. Why? Because for some reason, known to himself, God has chosen to shine his face upon them. You could see similar to the Mus- for the, with the Muslims. Missionaries to Muslims have for hundreds of years seen virtually no conversions. And now, in the last few decades, remarkable numbers of Muslims are turning to Christ. We live in remarkably good times. God has times when he gives great power and times when, for some reason, he withholds his power. Well, many, many more examples could be given, but I hope I've given enough to persuade you. I hope you didn't need persuading already. There are times when God's face is turned away from a church and times when his face is turned towards a church. There are times of weakness and there are times of power. There are times of fruitfulness and there are times of barrenness. We need him. We need him to choose to bless us. So how should we respond? Well, first of all, I want to go sideways a bit because I've been talking about us as a church. First of all, what about you as an individual? If you're not a Christian, although we've been hearing about the church and God's big plans on the big scale, we've also been hearing what you need personally. What you need is God to turn his face towards you. What you need is God to have plans of blessing and mercy for you. And so you need to cry out to him for that. And if you cry out to God, oh, 
I need your blessing and I need your mercy and I need you to be for me, not against me. That isn't just a cry in the dark. And that isn't wishful thinking because he has promised whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can call to him and expect him to respond because of what Jesus did on the cross. What about us as a church? How should we respond as a church? Well, don't romanticise revival. I've been talking about when God revives his church, but I purposely didn't quote some of the better-known writings and some of the better-known occasions because they really get romanticised. And some of the writings are really just emotional mush. Often a lot of trouble comes with revival. Don't romanticise revival. Don't think nothing worthwhile is happening unless we see something spectacular. Don't forget the kingdom of God grows like yeast in bread. Have you ever watched yeast working in bread? I made some bread once and put it in the oven. You know, you have the oven, don't you, down very low, just warm for it to rise. And I watched it. And I watched it. And then I gave up watching it because it was very boring because it works so very slowly. So don't forget, the kingdom of God works like yeast in bread. And don't just pray for God to work and then wait and sit back. What did Paul say to Timothy? Preach in season and out of season. Now that was a lot of don'ts. But it's not all negative. Let's have some do's. Do, do, do what? Do remember we need God's favour. We need him to choose to turn his face towards us. Do cry to God. And not one of those half-hearted prayers. Do cry to him. Do not just ask him for help with this project or that project. Plead with him for a turning of his face towards his church here in the UK. And do, do this because we need power from him. We need blessing from him. We need his favour. There's a graphic description in Isaiah of what preaching can be like. It's graphic, and if you thought about it too much, it's quite rude and disturbing. It's actually, it describes God's people being like a woman struggling in childbirth, and the only thing she pushes out is a load of wind. And it says, that's what our gospel effort is like, unless God takes it and uses it. We need his face turned towards us. Let's pray for that now.